When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. We're taking a break from the news today, but Brittany Sam McClellan will be back next week. On this week's episode, I talked to Sarah Koenig, the host and executive producer of the podcast that you know, Serial, and Emmanuel Dozier, who helped report and produce the show's most recent season. Then I'm joined by Rob Reich to discuss his new book, Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. For those of you who live in Philly, New York, Portland, Seattle, and San Francisco, Potsy the People is coming to you with amazing live shows. You can get your tickets now at cricket.com slash events. Plus, you can follow us on Twitter for announcements about guests. We're at Potsy the People. That's people spelled PPL. Go to cricket.com slash events to get your tickets now. You won't want to miss it. You know, I know I've said this before, but this is like the spirit that I'm entering the new year. It's like, trust what got you here. I think about like all the risks I took in 2014 when the project was began. I think about all the things that I did without a roadmap, but like I, I just knew it was like the right work to do. I think about all the, the tough conversations I had, all the things I played with, all the like ideas I entertained as I was like getting into the work. And sometimes you start to achieve the goals that you set out and like you lose some of that fire and energy that got you in the work in the first place. And part of my commitment to myself in 2019 is is to keep the fire that started me on this path at the beginning. That like I have to trust the energy that got me here because there was something special about that and I need that special to carry on. Let's go. And here's my conversation with Sarah Koenig, the host and executive producer of the podcast Serial, and Emmanuel Dotsi, who helped report and produce the show's most recent season. Emmanuel and Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today on Potsy of the People. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. You know, I'm fascinated by the latest season of Serial, and I know there are a lot of people who, who listened to it, and they were like, wow, not only did they learn things they didn't know before, but they were also surprised. Can you talk about how you chose uh, the criminal justice system in this way? Why Cleveland? Why the courts? Why these stories? Yeah, we sort of explain it a little bit. I explain it a little bit in a shorthand way in the first episode of the season. And it is true. It's just like, so we did this first season of Serial, right, was about an old murder case out of Baltimore. And, and we kind of took apart that investigation and trial and prosecution to sort of figure out, like, wait a minute, what went on here? And afterward, some of the ways that people were interacting with this story, both kind of publicly, but also to us directly to Julie Snyder, who's uh, my partner in Serial, and Dana Chivas, who who produced it with me, would come up and be like, wow, you really... Uh, you really explained the criminal justice system. Like, I had no idea I really explained it. Or or they would be like, well, what do you take from this? Like, what does this mean about the whole system, you know? And we would be like, I mean, I, I think we can sort of, you know, take a guess a little bit. You know, and I wasn't like a stranger to the system, obviously. Like, I had covered the courts a bit as a print reporter and stuff. So it wasn't like, none of this was like new to me. But I feel like we didn't really look into it because none of... The thing we just explained is like that's not what's happening every day at all. Like it's so every piece of that was rare. 
that was sort of bothering us, sort of coming out of the season and feeling like we scratched at something, but we really didn't like dig in in the way that we wanted to. And we're Julie and I are both very interested in just criminal justice as a as a topic. And then Julie had read this book called Courtroom 302 by Steve Bogira. He basically sat in a courtroom, Courtroom 302, in in Chicago and just watched for a year and told the story of that courtroom and that judge and the cases that come through. And what was cool about it is, I mean, I think he followed people for five years or something. I mean, it took a long time to actually published the book because he followed it all out. And so you see not only like just how far reaching the system is into people's lives and into politics and into, you know, throughout the building of the courthouse, but also you really see how different cases, depending on who are the characters involved, are treated. And Julie read it and so she flagged it to me and was like, read this book. Like, and, and so we read it and we were like, God, it would be really cool to do something like that for audio. Like, could we do something like that? So that was the genesis of it. I know that one of the things about Cleveland was that you could just record everywhere in a way that you couldn't in some other places. Mm-hmm. Was there another city that was in competition with Cleveland that like if you hadn't done Cleveland, you might have done another place? Um, yeah, I mean, Cleveland was a few reasons. Like, that was huge, right? The ability to record. And then Cleveland is a small city with fairly big city problems. And sort of those kinds of big city cases are coming through a very small and contained courthouse. So just the fact that everything is contained in this one building and everybody knows each other and it's a pretty hermetic and small world felt like, oh, we can we can get our arms around this in a more thorough and efficient way than we might in a, in a bigger, more sprawling system. I'd love to know from both of you, what are the things that you learned about the system that you just didn't know before this season? One of the biggest surprises for me, I just didn't really appreciate how vulnerable like our institutions are and how vulnerable our norms are to just people and their personalities. And in some ways, that can be a good thing, right? You can have really good outcomes that are based on somebody assessing the human side of the situation. Like, for example, a judge who has somebody on probation to them, how they view probation violations. You know, you could choose to look at that in like a particularly compassionate way or a a, a stricter way. The system and how we've built it kind of gives a lot of people within the system latitude to make decisions based on what they think and are feeling. The problem is, you know, you'd watch a procedure or we'd watch something play out and you'd just be like, wait, would this have gone differently if so-and-so had not been a ba- in a bad mood that day? <laughs> um, or if someone had just been a little nicer to somebody else? I-, I don't know. I think I had a lot of naivety about that and how that played out in the system. I feel like one of the surprising things for me halfway through is to realize some cases were falling through for us as reporters of like, we can't get this person or this other thing seems slightly more interesting. But none of it was like, oh, my God, if we don't get this one case, there goes our show or there goes our story or that because the problems were so omnipresent, like they're in they're inhabiting almost every case. And that, I think, was a surprise to me where I sort of thought, by and large, it's churning along okay, and you're going to see these kind of bubbles of problems and you just kind of follow the bubbles. But in fact, like, it's all bubbles, you know? And so that to me was a surprise. What did you learn about policing that you didn't know before? 
I spend most of my time around police, uh, like around the issue of policing. And I'm always interested in the way that like we think about police when we have no proximity to the issue and how that changes when you're up close. And Sarah, you talk about this notion of how you thought that it was dramatic, that like somebody would be like, oh, don't trust the police. And then when you saw the system work, you're like, ah, I totally get that. What was some of the texture there that helped you see it differently when your proximity changed? We were sort of handicapped in our in our ability to sort of report on the police in Cleveland, only insofar as they just really didn't participate. The city didn't participate with us. Um, so we weren't allowed really to talk to any active police on the record apart from the outgoing union president. So it was a lot of like observing and reading and, you know, there's a consent decree and there have been lawsuits and there's other journalism about what's going on there. And so it's not like we couldn't get a picture, but it was just like we never got in 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 the way that I had wanted after trying pretty hard to do so. But, you know, I think the police, they're not monolithic, right? Like in the same way people are like the military or the bench or whatever, like. They're different. I I totally accept that they're like different individuals and they don't all feel the same way. But as an institution, how embattled they feel and how locked into their position of righteous indignation they are was, I guess, a bit of a surprise. I mean, I sort of knew it, but to really see it up close, how aggrieved they feel and how attacked they feel, and how right they feel. And it's just really hard to shake an institution off of that pedestal that it's on. I want to ask you, Sarah, um, about Arnold Black. Mm -hmm. How is it like even knowing about the story of somebody who got such a large sum in a settlement, but the police are still fighting it so aggressively, or the city's still fighting it, uh, when it seems like it's clear that the police actually didn't sort of do their due diligence the way they were supposed to? I mean, it's appalling what happened to that guy. Can you give people like a brief primer who, yeah, who don't know? Yeah, so he's driving through, um, not Cleveland, but East Cleveland, which abuts Cleveland. And he gets pulled over by two cops. One is plainclothes, one is not. The plainclothes guy possibly seems like he was drunk. He's a detective. The uniformed officer is a patrol officer. They pull him over. They accuse him of trafficking. They're they're on the lookout for um, a drug trafficker who has the same color truck that Arnold Black has. Arnold Black is not that person, but they sort of, <laughs> instead of sort of genuflecting before him, I am so, so sorry, sir, please go about your business. They sort of take it out. It seems like, and I'm going to get riled up here, but it seems like the attitude was, well, now look what you've made me done. You've wasted my time. So that's on you. That seemed to be kind of like the response to him. And they take him to the back of his own truck. They beat him up. I mean, he gets hit so hard in the head that he, I think it's a uh, brain bleed. He he ends up needing surgery and, and like has brain damage. Like it's bad, really bad. They throw him in the squad car. They take him to the East Cleveland jail. They put him in what they generously term a holding cell that has um, no bathroom, no running water, no windows, no way to contact the outside world. It doubles as a storage closet. And they leave him in there. It's not even totally clear from the paperwork how long they leave him in there with, he says, no food 
And just like on day two, they give them like a little mini carton of milk like you would get at a school cafeteria. And that's it. And he's in there for four to five days, it seems like, with nothing, no medical care, no nothing. And then they sort of ship him off to the county. They charge him with um, a felony uh, cocaine possession um, and also a lesser charge of, of marijuana possession. And they um, ship him off to county jail, and then he gets bailed out pretty quickly. And then the prosecutors, after a month or two, get wind of like how screwed up this whole thing was, and they drop the charges and whatever he sues. He ends up getting a verdict of $22 million, but that just got reversed fairly recently. So now they sort of have to start all over again. What was it like to talk to people about it and to, like, unravel the details with that? So just to kind of call the stakeholders after the fact, and remember, we're calling in 2017, 2018, 2018, I guess, we were calling um, to report on this thing that had happened in 2012, and there was sort of a lot of, like, yeah, no, I don't, yeah. And, like, you know, there aren't really records. And some of the reporting I did was to call the judge whose room it was in, the prosecutor, his defense attorney, who's different from the civil attorney, and both the prosecutor's office and the judge who handled his case, who, you know, it was dismissed, didn't know anything about it. Like, they hadn't thought about it since 20. In other words, they hadn't read the news to be like, your guy just got a $22 million verdict for severe wow. abuse at the hands of the police and of the city of East Cleveland. They didn't know. They didn't know. And that's the thing where you're like, what? How I knew, you know, we knew right. <laughs> <laughs> over in New York and Pennsylvania, like the it was national, it was international. I mean, whatever. It's not the biggest news story that ever happened, but like it did get on the AP, and it was like you know international news. This guy gets this huge verdict, right? They didn't know. So what that means is no one is going back and being like, what the hell happened here? And how can we make sure this never, ever happens again? What are the steps we need to take now? That's the thing where your heart just like shrivels and you're like, I, oh, OK. It's, it's outrageous, but I also it just made me really sad where I felt like if no one is taking a real second look at this guy's case, like what does it take? And Emeo, what about you? You reported the Jesse case so closely. What were the things that, like, getting under the hood, you were like, wow, didn't, hadn't thought about that, didn't see this, didn't, didn't know that? So, so the Jesse story, one of our colleagues, Dana Chivers, she initially had basically come across the story because when I started reporting basically what this case was about, a defendant named Jesse Nickerson was arrested in connection with the different crime, um, basically picked up. He had like a, a gun in his car or next to his car. Anyways, he was being transported to East Cleveland's jail um, by two East Cleveland police officers, you know, to further an investigation. And, uh, you know, some words were exchanged in the car. And instead of taking him directly to the station, the officers took him to like a nearby park and basically said, well, you've been talking all this smack to us. You think you're such a tough guy. If you're so tough, like, let's see what you got. And they essentially challenged him to a fight. And the whole thing went downhill from there. According to the state, they beat Jesse in that park. And when they took him, eventually did take him back to the station after like that horrifying episode, the system kind of did what we want it to do. Right. In that like straight away, straight away, like East Cleveland knew something was wrong. An investigation was started. The two cops who were involved were placed on like administrative leave immediately, like basically by the morning shift, like within hours, they were like 
suspended. And within like a couple of days, both of those officers were fired. The BCI, which is like basically like the state investigation, took place and acted and it was quick. And so what I thought I was seeing was one of those cases where like somebody actually got justice. A victim of police brutality and misconduct actually kind of got the thing we want him to get. The main instigator, the main officer who had actually been driving the car, is in prison. I was basically going to interview Jesse Nickerson to be like, oh, how does it feel to win? But one of the things that had surprised me from the beginning about this whole episode was that both of the officers that had been involved in this incident were black. And one of them was from East Cleveland. And, and just to give a bit of context, East Cleveland is sort of like an inner suburb of, of Cleveland. It's its completely own like municipality. It's its own separate government, its own school system, its own police force. Like It's just a separate, tiny little chunk. And it's a completely black city. White flight happened. And over the years, a series of just like corruption scandals coupled with just like really harmful economic policies at the state level and locally have basically resulted in like one of the poorest, if not the poorest municipalities like in the entire state. And so I think I was just surprised because I think we look so often, we talk about diversifying our police forces. We talk about hiring policemen from communities like this one you know they will understand and be able to relate to people they arrest more because they've come from this community they know what it's like to be policed in this community and right from the off that didn't seem to add up it felt like all these other things that happened in this weird way and so I just had so many questions like why was it was the reason these officers were fired so easily because they were black and then to interview Jesse and to sort of begin to peel back basically that oh, not only do you feel like you didn't really get the justice that, like, you know, we think you'd get, but you've now been sort of exposed. You're, you're in this place and you have to keep living long after the cameras have covered what happened in this case. And just, you know, the further and further I went in that story, it just always felt like I never quite had my feet firmly anywhere. It felt like I was always operating in this constantly shifting place where, like, the rules were not the rules in other places. So it's like I'm I'm able to get kind of a look at like this uglier side of a place. But like that doesn't necessarily mean that it's like incredibly ugly of other places. You know, I, I remember at one point talking to an elected official who basically told me, you know, it's easier to see a lot of the things that are happening in East Cleveland that are messed up. But, you know, so many people I talked to were just like, you know, a lot of the things that happen in East Cleveland happen other places. But it's like because it's so... <laughs> you're like, uh... <laughs> yeah, and you're like, wait, what? But what I found is that the poorer the place where you live, seemingly the less recourse and the less oversight you're going to have in terms of what happens to you in the way in which you're policed. That's what really shocked me. Just at every turn, it was like, I thought, well, maybe things will go differently because, you know, these are black officers and, like, this is a black community and, like, they understand, right, that these people are poor and, like, they're poor through no fault of their own. Like, that never happened. That sort of understanding, I felt like, was so, was so sparse. If anything, it felt like the police were stricter. People weren't given the benefit of the doubt. So it's like a, you have a situation where arguably one of the neighborhoods in Cleveland that needs the best police officers is getting the worst and because they're in like a poor city there's absolutely nothing that people of east cleveland can do about it what do you say to all the people who listen to the season and they're like what do we do mostly i've been saying vote like no know, know who you're know who you're voting for and what you're voting for um 
I mean, in some ways, that's a huge thing, right? But in other ways, it's like a little bit small. But I, I feel like coming from the reality or, or a, a slightly pessimistic point of view that most people aren't going to take to the streets, right? And they're not going to go park themselves in the courthouse and see for themselves how things are going or knock on doors or whatever. But the thing that most of us are, you know, or hopefully will do is vote. And that feels like just as a starting place to say, we actually have control over much more of this than we feel like we do, I think, as like an average citizen. Like most of our judges in this country are elected. Most of our prosecutors are elected. And that's huge. Like those are huge levers in the system. We control that as voters entirely. And I think just to add, what's so important about those elected officers too, particularly when you look at like prosecutor's offices, that they're making decisions about the career prosecutors who are going to be hired. The people who are essentially who are essentially like the bureaucrats in our system, and I feel like that's something that so if you and I sort of realize is just like the power of the regular like workers and bureaucrats who are going to be around two, three administrations on from now. That that really matters. Something we ask everybody is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? You're only going to regret the things that you didn't do. You're not going to regret the things you did necessarily like you're gonna you know you'll be more full of the regret of just being like oh I'm too scared to try that thing or I'm not gonna go knock on that door because I don't feel like it or you know what I mean I've never regretted taking the scary step I've only regretted not taking it um so I try that's been very helpful to me when I'm when I'm prevaricating over something and then trying to distill like wait why are you hesitating and then realizing like Oh, you're you're something about this is frightening, and then remembering like that means you should do it. My grandpa was a pretty working class guy. Um, he had been a teacher at one point in his native homeland of Dominica, and then immigrated um, to the United Kingdom to England as part of like this big generation of immigrants from around what was then the British Empire, kind of answering a call to Britain for like more workers after the Second World War. And so he'd been a teacher and a really educated guy and then moved to Britain where, like, you know, he was doing basically odd jobs to keep our family afloat um, for the rest of his life. And um, I don't know. He used to just talk about how difficult it was to, to do that, how difficult it is to be treated like you're not a real person or that your story doesn't matter because you're not what society considers to be a real person. Right. You're just like a nameless person janitor or you're a nameless milkman or any of the thousands of jobs that my grandpa did but like i don't know the thing i feel like he always told me was just no matter what it is you're doing try to find little ways to be proud of it to make it about the work find what it is in your work and in what you do that matters pay attention to detail master your craft you know might not ever get you any recognition or whatever but at least if you're going to do a job do it really well and do it with like some semblance of pride Because, you know, you might not be where you want to be now or five years from now or 10 years from now or maybe ever, like maybe ever. But if you can find joy in what it is that you're doing, if you can find meaning in what it is that you're doing, by all means do that. Well, thank you both so much for for joining us today. And I can't wait to see what season four looks like. Oh, well, yeah, we too. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much to Ray. This is this is really great. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, but the question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Now, the conversation with Rob Reich, the author of Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Great to be here. Now, I want to talk about your new book, Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. You use the terms philanthropy and charity often. How do you define them? Are they the same? Or is there like a little bit of nuance? Like, what's the texture there? And what led you to writing this book? 
so philanthropy and charity often do get used in different ways. And if there's a difference, uh, philanthropy often refers to big foundations, big donors, an, an attempt to use private money to solve social problems at their root. Whereas charity is more often associated with kind of direct services, giving to a soup kitchen, uh, trying to provide aid that doesn't necessarily stop hunger, but will provide people with the basic needs that they are entitled to or need to get by. But the important thing from my point of view in this book is that philanthropy and charity, according to the law, mean exactly the same thing. So the same type of tax code or public policy arrangements we have for the kinds of donations that you or I would make to the soup kitchen are the same types of laws and policies that um, allow us to give money from a private foundation or to set up a private foundation. So legally speaking, there's no difference between philanthropy and charity, even though they mean something uh, slightly different in common usage. What made you start studying this? Like why, what made this be a research interest of yours? Yeah. After a couple of years of teaching in Houston, I went off to grad school, got my degree and started started my job um, here at Stanford uh, in the political science department. And I'd been writing mainly at that point about education. So one of the things that caught my attention when I had my first child, you know, the peninsula here, Silicon Valley is a, a pretty wealthy part of the world and was getting ready to send my first kid off to public school. Uh, my son enrolled in kindergarten, came back from Palo Alto with a whole bunch of paperwork to fill out, pretty standard. And in the paperwork was a letter from the superintendent saying that my expected but voluntary charitable contribution to the school this year was $2,000 per child. Mm. And I, I couldn't I couldn't believe that the public school in Palo Alto was asking for a charitable donation, especially a 2000 bucks. And so I decided to start a research project, which was to collect information about the phenomenon of private giving to public schools, not by places like the Gates Foundation, but by places like wealthy suburbs to see whether or not the common sense intuition would play out, namely that wealthy suburbs can raise a lot more money per pupil philanthropically than can big cities or poor places. And indeed, places like Woodside, Hillsboro, Palo Alto raise thousands of dollars per year per kid to supplement the public school funding. And I thought, here's an example of charity that is not addressing poverty, that is not going towards disadvantage, but in fact is amplifying disadvantage. It's exacerbating inequality. And I wanted to understand why that was happening and a bit more about charitable giving more generally. I used to lead uh, some of the human capital work in Minneapolis and and we would have people donate to specific schools too. What did you find with the way the money was being spent? Like, was it being spent on like services or like personnel or products? Like, was there anything interesting in that? Yeah, I, I studied that in, in, certainly in California. And basically each school district could set up its own rules. So some places had rules that said, for example, um, if you were going to give, you had to give centrally to the district. You couldn't give money directly to your own kid's school. Hmm. And then it was sort of parceled out equally across the district. Some districts said you can only give for extracurricular things, and like for the, you know, the fancy trip to Washington, D.C. You can't give to like hire an aide in the classroom. Other places just let anything happen basically that the parents want. And you can give not merely to your own kid's school. You can give to your own kid's classroom. So, uh, it, you know, there's really a a non-trivial self-benefit, not to mention, of course, that it props up real estate values, especially in a place like Palo Alto. How does it prop up real estate values? 
because if you can say uh, to other people who are you know want to move into the district, look at our amazing public schools where there's the foundation that raises all this additional money for these fantastic additional services, then the real estate agents proclaim this as one of the ways in which the public schools are basically sort of you know a bit like a private school environment, but um, ah. with the tax deduction for giving um, available for anyone who wants to help out. That is fascinating. What's the difference between like a nonprofit and a, a foundation? Are there differences there? Yeah. So American law is really bizarre, I found out, in defining a nonprofit sector. So we have something called a tax code, which defines what a public charity is. And in the tax code language, that's a 501c3 public charity. And then there are 501c4 social advocacy groups, and then a whole blizzard of other 501c6, c7, c10, c12. All of these are nonprofit organizations. The ones that we're most familiar with are called 501c3s, public charities. Those are the museums and hospitals and PTAs or PTOs with attached to schools or a foundation. The private foundations of the world, the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, are also classified as 501c3 private foundations, but it's all part of the same tax code. And of course, what separates a foundation from a nonprofit is that a nonprofit is is doing something. It's providing a, a service. It's giving educational opportunity. It's providing health care. It's giving soup out. It's a think tank. It's a museum. It's whatever it happens to be. And then it has to solicit donations from people, sometimes from foundations and sometimes from individuals, whereas a foundation typically doesn't have service provision on its own. It's just a grant-making organization that dishes money out to other 501c3 public charities. So one of the things I'm interested about with all this is like, what is the impact, right? And you talk about the beginning is that some people, some people are designed to do, purportedly do things at the root level, and some people are just sort of like, uh, help people who are in crisis, essentially? Like, what did you find about, like, the way impact changes de- depending on the type? Right. Foundations often like to think that they're trying to solve root problems. And so, you know, the, the language that a donor that creates a foundation might use is that, you know, the soup kitchen is operating at the retail level. They're just doling out to satisfy immediate needs. But if you work in a soup kitchen, there's a little chance that you're actually trying to solve at the policy level the problem of hunger. You're just meeting the basic needs of people. That's a good thing, but you can be sure that unless someone else is working in the policy solution, 10 years from now, you're going to have to do the same thing over again. Foundations, by contrast, want to work wholesale. They want to treat the root source of the problem and and try to eliminate the need for the soup kitchen in the first place. This is the language that often gets used. That's not always true, but that's what often gets said. And I mean, from my point of view, one of the interesting things about big philanthropy is that, you know, it's an admirable goal, of course, to say we want to try to solve poverty. We want to try to um, solve educational inequality or you know lack of opportunity. But what that means is that there are really wealthy people who create foundations who are effectively having an outsized voice in public policies in a context in a democracy where we expect everyone to have an equal voice. And so we have a landscape now where big philanthropy admirably often seeks root solutions to problems, but in doing so is pushing forward effectively the the preferred solutions of wealthy people to these problems in a way which gives them an outsized voice in policy debates. And there's a, a surface level tension between the plutocratic voice of the philanthropist and the democratic voice of the citizen. 
And what, what would you say though to people who hear that and say, well, are you, are you saying that like wealthy people shouldn't donate their wealth? Like, are you saying they should just hoard it and not give it back to communities? No, that and that's not ultimately what the book argues. But but I try to examine the kinds of policies that attach to big foundations that I just think are themselves a real problem. So, you know, one of the phrases I use in the book is that this is a book about political philosophy, not about moral philosophy or about public morality, not about personal morality. So I, I'm not trying to give advice in the book to a wealthy person about where they really should give their money away. What I'm trying to do is examine the public policies that, for example, give a massive tax break to people who create foundations. There's this great anecdote um, that I, I recount in the book when George Soros was setting up the foundations that he operates, the Open Society Institute. He put a whole bunch of money into the foundation. He was working with the people he hired. They were going to sort of announce what their their causes were that they were going to give grants to. And there was some internal disagreement about his, uh, between him and his staff about what they should basically devote the money to. And so Soros pounded his fist on the table, it, it said, and said, well, God damn it, at the end of the day, this is my money, so we're going to do things my way. And the junior program officer, you know, 30 years old or whatever, said, Mr. Soros, actually 40% of the money in this endowment would be in the treasury. Um, so I think that other people should have a say too. So when people create foundations, they're doing so partly with the subsidy of the rest of us for, through foregone tax revenue. Another thing that's really weird about foundations, donor preferences live in perpetuity. So, you know, a foundation is designed to live forever. Mm -hmm. The Rockefeller Foundation has outlived the Rockefellers and the Rockefeller family still plays a big role in the governance. And whatever John D. Rockefeller said the foundation should do, is what the foundation is legally harnessed to do. So, you know, the line that I use in the book is that the dead hand of the donor reaches out to strangle the living if the living would prefer to direct the money to some different cause. That's not legally permitted. So the book is a searching examination and criticism of a lot of the public policies we have. And in certain cases, it might actually be better if donors didn't create these plutocratic entities. But that's not the ambition of the book. The ambition of the book is to focus on the policies to try to change those. And to change the policies at the root level that allow wealthy people to have sway over politics in this undemocratic way is what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Are there models that you found of like good foundations, good donor, like people doing this in a way? Is MacArthur the like, if there has to be a good way, this is a good way? Yeah. So I'll give you a couple concrete examples, but let me give you the kind of structure or the framework by which I think about this. So the key for me for understanding what big philanthropy or what foundations could do that would support rather than undermine democracy is to try to understand how foundations differ from entities that are in the marketplace, the you know, for-profit companies or public agencies in, in the government. And the big difference there is that if you work in you know a company, you have a relatively short time horizon and an internal logic of being accountable to your customers. And you're always trying to fend off competitors who can put you out of business. You got to please your investors. You got to please Wall Street. You don't get to take a kind of 10-year research and development strategy where nothing's going to pay off until long downstream. And similarly, in government, if you work for a government and you're trying to spend a bunch of the taxpayers' dollars, if you don't show that your thing was a successful public program, um, you're unlikely to get reelected the next time around. 
So also in democratic government, by design, because of elections, we have these short time horizons where people have to show some success. So by contrast, in a foundation, people have basically very low accountability. You can take really long time horizon bets on social projects and innovations. Um, think here, just in terms of the accountability of the Gates Foundation. So we were talking about education at the start. The Gates Foundation, um, most people know, gives a whole bunch of money to try to change public schools in various ways in the United States. Some people who disagree with the Gates Foundation's preferences say that Bill Gates is the nation's unelected school superintendent, which it, there's a point there. Like if, if you disagree with Gates, what can you do? There's no one to unelect. Um, there's no other foundation that puts the Gates Foundation out of business. There's no consumer to stop buying what the Gates Foundation has on offer. It's just a bunch of people who need and want some money, and he gets to attach the strings that he wants. That's the power of the Gates Foundation. That's the power of any foundation. So how can that unaccountability be transformed from a vice into a virtue? That's the question I ask in the book. And the answer I give is that, well, when foundations work on a long time horizon, try to pioneer new social policies, new ideas that would be impossible or really unlikely to be tried out in government or in the nonprofit sector, then they can humbly present those successful ideas to uh, you know, citizens to see if things might be taken up and brought to scale for everybody. So I'll give you a concrete illustration of this. The, you know, the, the classic example of successful foundation idea is Andrew Carnegie's creation of the public libraries, which are now you know, ubiquitous in most places in the world. And Andrew Carnegie did not say to American people, here's a bunch of money from my foundation. I'll create a public library in every town and city in the country, and I will fund it forever. He said, here's a bunch of money to try out this idea. And if people really like it, well, then they'll ask their local politicians or representatives to support it publicly. That, for me, is the right trajectory. That's the right way a foundation should work. It's to pioneer some new ideas, to attach an evidence base to the ones that are successful, and then to humbly present those ideas as auditioning for the stamp of public approval, which typically means going to the ultimate scaling mechanism of all, which is the government, to bring the thing to everybody. That remind, you know, often what we see in organizing is this idea that the best programs often exist because the structure didn't work out in the first place, right? That the system failed. Yeah. Like The only reason why we need a million after-school programs to teach reading is that we didn't figure out how to teach it during the school day, right? And like the only reason we need exactly. to... Like, feed homeless people under bridges is because they're homeless because we didn't guarantee housing right and that makes me think of this is that like you're sort of saying that like foundations shouldn't own as a core part of their mission the execution of programs in perpetuity that that's just not what that's if not the, what they're suited to do. That if the goal is to actually in the whatever the bad thing is like that's not that's not how they should engage Right. Well, let me give you another example. I wonder what you think of this. I mean, I've read that Black Lives Matter and uh, with a whole bunch of other folks are um, tentatively enthusiastic about this new policy idea called universal basic income. The idea that you just give, you know, unconditional amount of cash to people um, every single year, every single month. And all right, that's an interesting, maybe even a radical policy proposal to guarantee people a kind of basic minimum so that they can they can get by. And the thing that I think is that this is like a perfect idea for philanthropists to get behind and try to experiment with. So, you know, you don't want public dollars being expended on a kind of social experiment here, because if it turns out that basic income basically is an excuse to people not to work, 
then we'll have spent a whole bunch of taxpayer dollars to produce a bad outcome. But if we can figure out a way philanthropically to try it out, philanthropically fund these things, see which designs are better rather than worse. And then since there's no philanthropist, even the wealthiest person in the entire world, Jeff Bezos, couldn't, through his foundation, give everyone a basic income, you got to try it out at a local level, see what works, improve it over time, and then present it to the relevant scaling mechanism, in this case, the government, to give it to everybody. So like that would be a really great use of philanthropic money, in my view, rather than setting up a foundation to give money to the soup kitchen. Because if you're doing that, don't bother. Just write them a check from your back pocket. You don't need a private foundation to, to direct money to a soup kitchen. During the holiday season, people are inclined to give, I would say, more than they normally are. Are you saying that those like private citizens like me, my, you, know, you, your family, my sister and my father, should they not be donating in the spirit of charity? Well, I definitely wouldn't say they shouldn't be donating. But what I'd say is, is two things. On the one hand, I want to champion ordinary donors of all kinds to, to fund the things that are important to them. I was one of the people who helped to create Giving Tuesday, um, played a small role in that in the evolution of that. So, you know, that, that's the kind of mass giving that I think is really beneficial. But I'd also add that, you know, I want people to think about more effective rather than less effective uses of charitable donations. Giving to your own kids public school might be a way of worsening inequality, not making it better. Only listening to, you know, like when your cousin says they're going to run in the, the the half marathon to raise money on behalf of something. You know, most people don't treat that as an opportunity to investigate whether or not that organization is especially effective. They just do it because their friend asked them to. A lot of philanthropy in the United States, a lot of just basic ordinary giving is because someone we know asked us to give. And it's a kind of social mechanism to support what our friends do. And we're not investigating whether or not it's a worthwhile use of our charitable dollars. So, I mean, to put it in a slogan, I'd want more giving with the head rather than just with the heart. A lot of philanthropy or charity is about our, our passions, about our social relationships. And there's a place for that, for sure. But we ought to get our head involved as well. Now that more people are talking about philanthropy and there's more eyes on it, do you see big changes coming with the major foundations or no? Well, not yet, although, you know, the simplest outcome of the book or the thing I most hope for the book is to get people to think about philanthropy and charity as an important form of power. And the slogan I give in the book is that wherever there's an exercise of power in a democracy, it deserves our scrutiny, not just our gratitude. So the kind of phenomenon I want to begin happening is in the United States right now, we're at a moment when when we have record inequality in, in, in you know, the 1% and the 99% or the you know, top 10% and everybody else, however you want to measure it. And the wealthiest people who have a mountain of money are now doing everything they can legally to diminish their taxes to as close to zero as they can get. So they're withdrawing from participation as a citizen in sending dollars to the treasury where it's just their voice amongst everyone else to distribute those dollars. And then after having defunded the treasury through lowering their taxes as far as they can go, they then say, you know what? Government's kind of broken. I think I'm going to set up a private foundation and I'll, I'll, I'll give out some, some public benefits in a much smarter way. And they then take a further tax break in setting up the foundation. They um, erect themselves as the sole decision maker for sprinkling that philanthropic money around. 
And they looked to every all the rest of the citizens to bend over in gratitude to them for this entire sequence of events. That's the wrong social attitude about philanthropy. We should be directing scrutiny towards our biggest donors so that the power that donors exercise in democracy is on behalf of the democratic ideals that we care about rather than making government more dysfunctional, making it less likely that we act as citizens and rely only on the private, you know, largesse of wealthy people. A lot of people in this moment who have done everything they were supposed to do, right? They voted, they protested, they've been to yeah. meetings, they've, like they've done all those things and the outcomes haven't changed in ways that they thought were right. going to happen. What do you say to those people? Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, in the wonky language of a philosopher, which is my training, you know, the way to describe this is that there's, you know, a first best world or an ideal uh, arrangement, kind of looking for utopian utopian outcomes, and then the second best or third best or fourth best thing to do. So, you know, let's take go back to solving um, hunger. Uh, you know, if, if I gave money to the soup kitchen or I volunteered at a soup kitchen, I'm pretty confident that someone's life is going to be a little better off than it would be in the absence of my donating some money or volunteering. Whereas if you said to me, but, I, you know, it's really important to act as a citizen and solve the root problem, which is hunger itself. And I go to vote for the right people. I go to the state capital to agitate for some type of, you know, food stamps or a different type of solution. I don't I don't know how confident I'm going to be that that's going to result in some real change. That's correct. As an analysis, we can be confident of our charitable acts being successful, more or less and less confident that our acts as citizens will yield change. But if every single person makes that same calculation and all we get is a lot of charity instead of acting as a citizen, well, then for sure we're never going to get much change as uh, in our public policies. And part of what acting as a citizen is, is having hope that an unseen outcome might yet come about through your own actions. And the thing I just emphasize is that we can act as a private donor or we can act as a citizen. And I think more often than not, the temptation these days is to think that private charitable solutions are somehow better than public coordinated civic action. And I think that's a problem. What do you say, though, to people who are like, the government just can't move as fast? The government like doesn't have a good record of scaling? The philanthropy is nimble can move quickly, can make an impact better, like less red tape. That, that like you, This seems to have a lot of faith on the government to actually get itself together. And yep. the people are actually living through a moment right now where, they have, where they've seen the government not commit to people in like a really intense way. Right. And I, I totally understand that point of view because we do have a government uh, right now that is especially dysfunctional. So people are right to feel a lot of doubt that, um, that we're likely to see in any near term a bunch of change there. I guess it, you know, what I want to know from the person who says that that's a reason to just do the, the, the more nimble, the quicker, the more confident, charitable or philanthropic thing is talk about education reform and the, those after school reading programs like, OK, so a whole bunch of kids are going to get some, you know, better services, let's hope, after school. That'll be a really good thing for those those kids. But we know this is a systemic issue here. So. When you're done doing your volunteering one or two years from now, or when you're done giving your money and your your you know your preferences have wandered elsewhere, what's the bigger solution that's going actually going to treat all kids who need the the reading help? What, what the, what's the bigger solution that's going to actually get people fed rather than relying on soup kitchens? 
we could do so much more, it seems to me, by taking the chance of long time horizon change um, that really calls upon us as citizens rather than as donors. Or at the very least, we should have a court, you know, in our heads, a portfolio approach. I'm going to do a bunch of stuff as a donor. I'm going to do a bunch of stuff as a citizen. Even though as a citizen, um, things might not work out, at least I am exercising my civic voice. And the thing I also got to say is that most collective action, most social activism seems really unlikely to be successful for a whole bunch of time. And then suddenly it's as if a light switches and then you get everybody's attention and you really move the debate. It's really hard to predict which ones are that's going to happen to. But that's part of the promise of democracy is the actions of ordinary people actually making a difference over the long haul. And we shouldn't ever underestimate that. And what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Well, this goes back to my being a teacher. This one's really stuck with me. It came from a colleague of mine here at Stanford who was talking about teaching. And he said that the magic power of a teacher is not to have a kind of like overnight transformative effect on a young person, but just to nudge that person one degree or two degrees to the right or the left. And then when you radiate out, moving one or two degrees to the left or the right, you know, 20 years, 30 years later, that person is in a much different spot than they would have been if if they had just kept on their ordinary path. That reminds me over and over again of the power of teaching. And um, I try to remind myself about that when I'm feeling you know, kind of down about whatever effects on the world teaching has. Awesome. Well, great to talk to you. I can't wait to learn more. And I hope we'll be able to do something together one day. Yeah, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious.